3: Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a it for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: I've lived in LA off and on. I went to undergrad there and then stayed for like 10 years. But this past spring, I was working there, and it's the first time I lived by the beach. I, I grabbed an Airbnb in Venice, and I will never not live close to the beach when I'm back in L.A. It was gorgeous.
5: I was with some Caribbean friends in New York. You know, we'd been walking around and looking at all the things, and it was amazing and the whole thing. And then we finally got to the Hudson, and they suddenly relaxed, and they were like, Thank God. Like, we didn't know where the city breathed. <laughs> I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to the Mini Questions Season 2. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire, and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honoured and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today is the actor, author and former Obama staff member, Cal Penn. Cal is an extraordinary mix of creative talent and intellectual acuity, which don't always go hand in hand in my business. A native of New Jersey, and as keenly political as he is creative, Cal has been a standard bearer for actors of Southeast Asian heritage, bursting onto our screens with John Cho in the Harold and Kumar series. And his experience of casual systemic racism in Hollywood and how that is changing is so clearly and candidly examined in our interview, amongst many other things. I will also forever hold close the idea that for Cal, when I asked him what relationship real or fictionalized defines love for him, he said, the Muppets. I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So now what person, place, or experience most altered your life?
4: I was going to say, I will say my grandparents, and I want to define that altering does not imply that my life was going in one direction and then it changed course. So I would say maybe impacted because they, so I, I got to know all four grandparents when I was a kid, but the stories they would, they would tell us, my grandparents, especially on my mom's side would talk about. How they marched with Gandhi, and that those were the stories, so it was stories like about literally you know you're they're trying to get you to eat your vegetables, and so Grandpa's talking about getting thrown in jail and beaten by British soldiers for standing up for his human rights, and of course the eight year old you was like, "Ugh, there he goes again, Grandpa with another Gandhi story." <laughs> Oh my so, <laughs> gosh, being, oh my gosh. Because you're like, you know, like, eye-rolling, this, eye-rolling over a, a yeah. Gandhi story. I'm this, like, oh, American kid born and raised in the suburbs of New York City, and I'm like, oh, here we go. But, wow. of course, then when you understand as a kid, you know, I think for me it was in sixth grade, there was a very small section in our history book that tied Gandhi and nonviolent civil disobedience to Dr. King.
5: Hmm. So you connected it, you connected it to like...
4: Yes, they were still alive at that point. So I had the chance to ask my oh, wow. grandparents questions and my one grandmother in particular didn't speak any English. So one of the reasons that I am bilingual and fluently so is because in order to communicate with her, I I had to learn uh, a language called Gujarati. I wouldn't say it changed the course of my life, but it offered perspective and a certain type of grounding where recognizing that things like this are not things that are in ancient history, but happen to and have happened to and involve our relatives, people we've met and known and loved in our lifetimes. And then the idea of, and folks who are multilingual will, will know this, I'm so grateful because Lord knows my high school French didn't turn out too hot. So I'm, I'm very grateful for my grandparents being multilingual because it, it just offered a, a perspective on getting to know people and being able to travel and being able to travel in another language that I, I don't think I would have had the exposure to otherwise.
5: Is Gujarati the most spoken language in India?
4: I think it's something like there, there are 60 or 80 million Gujarati speakers because there are a billion people it in, makes it on the makes subcontinent. it subcontinent. So Yeah,
5: it's a it's a minority language.
4: Regionally it's a smaller language, but by global standards, it's pretty big.
5: Yeah, I mean more than more than <laughs> how many people there are in England. Yeah, I mean goodness.
4: <laughs> right,
5: yeah. Wow. I love that you learned a language to be able to communicate with your your grandma. Like yeah. that's really that's really wonderful. When was the last time? When was the most recent time that you used your Gujarati?
4: There's a movie on Netflix. I think it's Netflix, called Wrong Side Raju, and it's in Gujarati. And I was like thumbing through. I was like, wonder if they have any Gujarati language content, and they did. So I watched it, and it was wonderful.
5: Oh my god! How <laughs> brilliant! So maybe I will go and check it out. Tell check me the it name out. again.
4: Wrong Side Raju. Wrong
5: Side. Raju. <laughs> Ace. That's this or,
4: weekend's Or just viewing. type in Gujarati movies, and there's like just three. Just put three in Gujarati, so and it'll we'll come. Yeah. Okay. Good. This. Okay.
0: Good. <laughs> Will you
5: tell me where and when you were happiest in your life?
4: Yes, and I was trying to think about this. I had wished when I was thinking about this answer, I was like, so I'm a big astronomy nerd. And I was like, I wish I had the $100 million to go into space. Talk about <laughs> talk about things that are morally questionable. By the uh, way,
5: 45 <laughs> minutes and you're not even in space because he wasn't in space. He was literally not in space. He was just up high in the sky.
4: I love how annoyed you are. I love how annoyed you are about that. i yes. so
5: annoyed by <laughs> how much were, were money. Were you weightless? Sure. Were you sure. in space? <laughs> not really. You weren't really in deep space.
4: Yeah. So I was going to, I was going to say, Oh, I wish I, I, wish I'd done one of those. That would have been my easy answer. I, for me, I feel like part of it in terms of like, you know, where, uh, have I been happiest? There was a work experience that I had on a, a film called The Namesake, which is based on a novel, uh, written by, um, wonderful author named Jhumpa Lahiri. She won the Pulitzer for her first book, The Interpreter of Melodies. And the film, I had the chance to play the, the, one of the leads in the film was directed by a woman named Mira Nair, who was- She's incredible. uh, She's amazing. And she was a role model of mine from the time I was a kid. Mm. She's actually one of the reasons I decided to become an actor, because when I was a kid, she had this movie come out called Mississippi Masala.
5: I remember, my God. It was just the hottest, most beautiful, amazing movie. And
4: for folks who don't know, uh, Sarita Choudhury, Denzel Washington, and- uh, and the first time that, you know, the, the 13 or 14-year-old me had seen characters on screen who looked like me, who weren't mm. played by people in brown face or cartoon characters.
5: <laughs> my God. That was how I wanted to look more than any other. I mean, once when I was a kid, it was Sigourney Weaver because there was no one else that had the same hair as I did. But Sarita in that film was the most, my it was my epitome of female beauty.
4: Oh, wow. Basically, walking out of that theater, I thought, oh wow, these are, these are families or characters that, that are like mine. And they're, in addition to just the, the feeling of like, why do I feel this way? And, and the characters also weren't one note, right? They were flawed and they made mistakes and they were racist and they had sex and they, all of the beautiful and tragic things that happen in life were happening to these characters. So it was one of those things where I thought, well, if, if this, if these women can do it, then maybe it's something I can do as well. And then in college, I remember waiting for hours. There was an announcement that Mira Nair was going to speak on campus. And I went, it was, I think it was like a 7 p.m. start time. And I must've showed up at like 3 p.m. Huh. And I waited in line with my headshot. <laughs> I was like, okay, I feel like if I sit in the front row, it's too eager. <laughs> but if I sit like two rows back, then I can get her my headshot at the end. And uh, I loved, I, you know, I loved her her conversation. And at the very end, I managed to kind of get up to her and handed her my headshot. She was very polite. She said, oh, how, how lovely. And that was it. Obviously, you don't hear from people when you bombard them that way. Um, but that was in college. And then 2005 or six. I had the chance to work on the namesake. And I will tell you, I only had the chance to work on the namesake because uh, Mira's then 14-year-old son, Zoran, was a huge fan of the Harold and Kumar uh, oh, Go to White Castle film. Oh, my God. And he apparently had shown her the uh, a trailer or a couple of clips from the movie to say, hey, Cal Penn would be perfect as Gogol, the title character or the lead character in the, in the film. And Mira apparently saw this like silly stoner movie and was like, this is obviously not the guy. <laughs> but I had written her a letter asking to audition for the film because I heard she was casting it, and I never heard back. And so I found out that the reason that I was finally allowed to audition was because of her son. So basically, she, he convinced her to let me audition. Now, Harold and Kumar, I think one of the reasons that I had tipped my myself over the edge was I was one of the few South Asian actors in those days who had a film credit on his resume because of a comedy I did in like 2000 2001 called Van Wilder with Ryan Reynolds? Oh yeah, and Tara Ryan Reed. Reynolds.
5: That was yeah. like his first. That was his, his first, first big, big thing. Movie. Yeah.
4: And uh, the name of the character was Taj Mahal that I played. Like no. it was this. It was. I had a great. I mean, no. I I, I, <laughs> I, 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 in the, I have a, a a book that recently came out where I talk about the whole story about getting cast in it and and how gracious, by the way, both Ryan and Tara Reed were. But to go from like that first job where you're an actor, you take what you're going to get, right? And you build your resume from it. Uh, but the problematic nature of playing a guy named Taj Mahal to that leading to the Harold and Kumar movies, to that then leading to the namesake where I get to work with a woman who is one of the reasons that I decided to be an actor to begin with. And then starting on that project and realizing it was, especially in 2005, guys who look like me don't get to do literary adaptations that are that are beautiful dramas.
5: You're right, because now, you know, I look at, I don't know, Dev Patel, just like, Mm -hmm.
4: just total movie star. Absolutely.
5: But in 2005, you're right. Yeah, you were.
4: So for all those reasons, when you say, when were you most happiest, I I was like, is it a cop-out to mention something work-related? And I thought, you know, it's not, because the whole reason we love... Art and storytelling sometimes is tied into so much more, including the 14-year-old me and the Mm. 26-year-old me and then the 28-year-old me. And, you know, it's just at every iteration when there's something like that that inspires you and then you have the chance to work with those people. I can't even describe how content I was and how much I felt like I was able to excel in my craft during that period of time.
5: I completely understand that and I think it's so connected and also your desire was the straight shot. Mm-hmm. Everything else was just constantly bisecting the straight shot of your kind of intention but the, the fact that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily come in the way that you thought it should. It didn't you know, maybe you thought that you would hand her your headshot and it would all sort of happen then, and it's like, no. And actually it's still not going to happen in a super competitive audition process, but then a 14-year-old kid who's seen this movie, I love it when happiness is genuinely in the grey areas. It's not in the... It's often not in the way in which we divine it should be.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
5: How amazing also the fact that Miranaya would be this... Continuous creative punctuation through your story. I, I think that's really, I think that's really amazing. I'm also, I cannot believe that the character in Van Wilder was called High <laughs> School I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. It is shocking. Uh, it, it is it, absolutely it, shocking oh, that oh, that was only, that was, that was 2005. Like it's not that long. I mean, that's not that long ago.
4: 2000. Well, I'll, I'll one up you on if you're, if you're surprised by that. Cause you're right. It, it wasn't that long ago. I think every actor goes through this in, in the appropriate comparison. But, you know, sometimes you audition for stuff and you, you want to know if you're going to get it and you're not sure if you're going to take it. And so this was one of those mm-hmm. things where I was like, let me just see. Cause I know I'm an, I'm a, I'm an aspiring actor at that point. I was like, let me see if I get this job because I need a credit on my resume. And the reality is mm-hmm. I know, I know what people think I look like. And so, if I'm going to get credits on my resume, I'm going to probably have to do some of these types of, of parts. And so I remember going back for callbacks, and I knew at the last callback, I was told it's between you and another guy. And I didn't know who he was. And the issue with diversity is, of course, it's never a question of there aren't enough actors. It's, you know, everybody, there's so many talented actors to choose from. And so I walk into the room, and the other guy had arrived before me, and it was a white dude in brown face. <laughs> And, Are you kidding? I, I'm, I'm not kidding. And any any um, any question that I had about whether I was going to take the part if I got it all went out the window because I saw this dude sitting there and I was like, oh yeah, no, you're not allowed to play this. You can play Braden from Iowa all you want because you're going to get tons of auditions or stuff like that. And it, it made the decision a lot easier because I thought, no. The, so the choice is like this: dude gets a credit on his resume, or I do. And I don't know how your approach is, but I rarely have beef with other actors in in any situation, especially even a situation like this, because I understand the desperation of wanting a job and how competitive the field is. So I was more curious. I was like, okay, here's the deal. My God. Did this guy... A, like did his agent tell him to paint his face or did he decide to do that on his own? Number two, it's a callback. Had he painted his face before, before and everyone was cool with that? Number three, where did he do it? Did he paint his face at home? If so... Did it increase his chances of getting pulled over by the cops? Or did he come to the audition and then paint his face in the bathroom? That was all the stuff. I was so fascinated.
5: (laughs) I'm just, I know, and I know that you're, you're laughing and you're brilliant and you have long metabolized this, but it's like the awful sort of passive sexual assaults that happen on female actors all the time and how one just sort of metabolizes it and it becomes part of your narrative. But it's only like, when I tell that story, people, I think they're going to laugh or they're like, Oh my goodness. They don't. And like hearing you, hearing you tell that story, like of what, of what that must've been like, like walking into, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so shocked. And I'm also, it makes where we are, Now, in terms of this business that we're in, because I know it is really local to what is happening in Hollywood, where we are seeing significant change and inclusion is actively being pursued, that I sort of feel like perhaps the boat is turning, but still you... You're so good humored about something that is I I thought that didn't happen after Fisher Stevens, like brown faced in uh, <laughs> short circuit, short which is circuit. still which is still <laughs> one of the most insane things I've ever seen in my life. Like now yeah, to watch yeah. that film, it's
4: Yeah. No, it still happens. I mean, look, the, the the reason I laugh about it and the reason that I in in the uh the book and especially in the audiobook, because I read it myself yeah. for this particular reason is like, you know, the the one of the many reasons that I laugh about things like that. Not that it doesn't happen. It happened as recently as the live-action Aladdin, where a lot of extras were painted, apparently. And Disney, who I happily have worked for and hope to continue to work for, I, I think their, their statement was something like, well, it wasn't possible to hire enough brown background actors. And they were, they were shooting in fucking London. I mean, come on. That's, really? That's nuts.
5: No. The real not.
4: answer to that is we, we didn't want to invest the financial resources in getting them all. It's not that they don't exist. Are you going to have to work a tiny bit harder to find them? Maybe. Um, and there were there were some lively conversations about it where I think, thankfully, like you had mentioned, people it, within the industry were like, oh, yeah, that's not a thing that's cool. We shouldn't, we shouldn't we, do we that can, anymore. We can do better, right? Collectively, yeah, we, can we can do, can better. do better. right?" The, but the biggest reason I laugh about telling those stories is I'm so happy with being able to turn on the TV today and just seeing so much diversity in terms of content. And I don't even just mean the... Ethnic or gender diversity. I'm talking like you turn on some of these shows, and it's stuff that you, I couldn't have conceived of would would even be a show ten years ago. Yeah. Or something, you know, something like, like uh, Never Have I Ever, right? Yeah. So many South Asian characters of a different generation, like two below mine, never would have mm. thought that we'd ever see something like that. So it's it, I, I tell those stories in a good-natured way. I think because I'm so happy with how much our industry has progressed. And to your point, there's obviously so much more work that still needs to be done, but mm. it's a nice, I think it's nice momentum in the last few years.
5: Yeah. I also think that, or well, I've realized that the way in which people metabolize hard conversations is often when there is, and even though it seems to fall on the shoulder of the person to whom the bad shit has happened, Yeah. but when you being able to tell it, tell that story in such an erudite, <sighs> funny, clever way, it's like, but again, I find that awful because I'm like, oh, well, you know, Cal's giving me permission to laugh and be OK with this.
4: You should laugh. Yeah.
5: I feel like it is it is better to laugh than to feel still in a ditch around that stuff. And I laugh telling the stories of being aggressed upon by revolting casting directors, directors and whomever it was.
4: Yeah your point is so well taken because it reminds me of, I think it's, it's difficult if, if these conversations are overly sanitized,
5: Yeah,
3: it's
4: difficult to explain. Like I remember Twitter, by the way, tw- Twitter mentions obviously are not a good barometer on, on, on taking the temperature on anything, but really, okay. <laughs> but <laughs> whether you? it's, whether it's Twitter or people who will actually have conversations with you, I remember a couple of people said, why are you whining about something like, like Aladdin Brownface when you played that that character in Van Wilder. And I I realized that if these conversations are overly sanitized and you don't have any experience with the story that somebody is telling you, and if you've always grown up seeing characters who look like you on screen, it's very difficult to succinctly explain to somebody when you're absent from what you see every day, from every cultural reference point, you feel as a kid like your options are limited in life. Mm. You just feel that way. It just is. I'm not I'm not t- I'm not telling you that you should feel differently because your experience isn't that but your point I think that you made about about casting directors and about being pitted against each other is there's so much nuance to these conversations and in order to actually tell those stories again which is why I try to use humor because I think it it draws I agree. people into curiosity is then I think it sets the tone for the complexity of what that is and ultimately what we all want which is to move beyond that and and celebrate what is possible instead of just looking backwards
5: absolutely there is simply no way of me a white person knowing what it is like to not grow up seeing myself represented because right, it's yeah. all I've I've ever known and i think that like you said, what's happening now? where you just turn on the television. And it's across the board, it's not just about color or gender. It's about it's about everything that has been marginalized totally. and yeah. turned into fringe that is now being pulled into this crucible of like cultural awareness, which is that's how we change. it's it, 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 it's where it's where change, meaningful change happens, I think.
6: Hello. Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. iWay basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On iWay with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamita Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
2: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you?
4: The Muppets. Oh. <laughs> I can tell from the look on your face that nobody has said this before, and I'm not sure no. if that's I'm, a good thing or well, a bad I'm, thing. Well, I'm
5: not. Now that you say it, I'm not sure why no one has said it before. Because, of course, they define love, right? Please, please continue.
4: Just it's love for each other, obviously, uh, with all of the complexities that come along with that. And I'm not just talking about Kermit and Miss Piggy. And a love for what they do, because there's such an obvious love for the audience as the, the extension of that fourth wall, that it's all a celebration of what they're doing. All of it is based in the love of this collective thing. And I just think it's the coolest thing.
5: It's so true. What was it? It's time to put on makeup. It's time to yeah. light the lights. Like the whole thing is about the show. I love that you chose the Muppets yeah. and also that it's fictional. Because I often, yeah. all my great loves have been fictional. Did you watch a lot of Muppets when you were a child?
4: I did. And still.
5: <laughs> who is your, well, I was called Animal at school. That was one of my nicknames yeah. that people called me because I had crazy hair. And I was really sort of tall and thin with a hair like the top of a palm tree. <laughs> who, is, who is your most beloved Muppet?
4: I, I've i always been gravitated towards Kermit, but I will tell you why. I know that you assume it's because, okay, well, he's like the leader and you're, you know. And the poet. It is it is all of those things, but the real reason, <laughs> <laughs> the real reason is that he is the only one who appears on both The Muppet Show and Sesame Street. He does both. And so I was always very, very in awe of the fact that that dude had two jobs. I could watch him in the morning on Sesame Street, and then he was also on The Muppet Show in the evening.
5: By the way, that is also a really South Asian work ethic coming out right there. That is fully cultural of, like, he
4: has two jobs. That's true. One in
5: the morning and one in the evening.
4: That's something that 19 uncles would probably point out, yes.
5: (laughs) that's fantastic I've never thought about that and you're absolutely right I love Kermit I love him Um, also the Willie Nelson version of Rainbow Connection is Mm. honestly I don't think I've ever not cried listening to that song what question would you most like answered
4: oh boy I was, I was about to say what happens after you die, but the answer is nothing.
5: Well, you so. don't know that. <laughs> you definitely don't know that that is the answer it's true. to that it's, question. That's true.
4: That's true. That's true.
5: I mean, there's nothing there's nothing for your body, but I don't know. Who who knows that the the, 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 the kinetic doesn't kick a c- carry on?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I would like answered where where specifically the the closest civilization is outside of ours.
5: Ooh, that's good. And now, you see, I'm really thinking about that because I've had all kinds of aliens and after we die answers, which are always fun to think about, but actually thinking where geographically... Yeah. ..or where, whatever the word... Can you use geographical if you want if it's not pertaining like to the Earth's surface? Like, can you use that in the universe? Is should there be a word?
4: We can. We've just decided that that's acceptable.
5: Great! I'm so glad that that's too that educated we're the, people. We're the king and queen. <laughs> <laughs> What's the new telescope? What's it the, called? The
4: Webb, the James Webb Telescope. Do
5: you th- Which, by the way, someone wrote something so funny. They were like, uh, the day after they showed those pictures, they were like, yeah. mm, Hubble's waking up today like the before picture in a Botox ad. <laughs> <laughs> Bless Hubble. Do you think, though, that that exponential development of our ability to go and... Do you think that's what will help us answer questions like the one that you've just posed. I think so
4: yeah I think so I hope so
5: how far off do you think we are do you know you like astronomy what do you so, think yeah,
4: so, somebody was saying that the, the hope was in our lifetime
5: oh my god I, I was having this conversation with this man called David Eagleman who is this this neuroscientist brilliant scientist person who teaches at Stanford and he was talking about the vastness of our ignorance, the complexity and vastness of our ignorance, but not in a way like ignorance has such a kind of pejorative flavor, but in the like, the excited, the mm-hmm. vastness of our ignorance, like within that is all of these answers. And that if yeah. we keep exploring the vastness of our ignorance, that we will come across it. And I love that. I love that idea because it's sort of becoming pioneers of the unknown. Like, I mean, and, and being excited and curious about that, as opposed to feeling uh, bewildered and... And hopeless, which is how I often feel when I think about the unknown. Like, where's my next job coming from? (laughs) What would be your last meal? Tacos. Uh Aha.
4: I love tacos. Tacos Are there really
5: good tacos in New York?
4: I don't think anything compares, obviously, to Mexico, but L.A., Mexican food in LA compared to New York, there's no, there's no comparison.
5: California and Mexico are just that there's, there's nowhere I've eaten. I've eaten tacos everywhere and there's nowhere like LA and
4: Mexico. Yeah. My, my favorite taco spot is still a place called Los Tacos on Santa Monica Boulevard, just west of Fairfax. It's in a strip mall next to, it's sandwiched between a 7-Eleven and a laundromat. I used to live in the neighborhood 15 years ago. And that laundromat is where I used to do my laundry. And so early in the morning, you would see these lines of construction workers getting their breakfast. At night, you would see a whole bunch of drunk people getting their munchie food. So one day while I was doing laundry, I was like, let me see what the hype is about here. And it was so delicious. It's open 24-7. And I have been known to stop there to and or from LAX. So like the plane lands and I'm like, Hey, can you guys give me an extra 40 minutes before the first meeting? Because I need to hit up Los Tacos. Real quick.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, my God. I can't wait to go there. I'm literally going it's there really on Monday. Good. Please do. I've got to be in town on Monday. I'm going to Los Tacos. Okay, That's what great. do you what do you get?
4: Number two, which is uh, two tacos, rice and beans.
5: But what's in your, are you a carne asada? You or can get chicken, what do you?
4: I've done their chicken and their veg their veggie are going to be soft tacos and their mm. chicken you can get either soft or hard
5: i'm really hungry now
4: yeah it's really good there's nothing better i would say, are you are you vegetarian
5: no i'm, be- okay, I'm be- i so- don't eat red meat but i yeah. eat i eat a bit of chicken and i eat fish
4: so a funny story about that place when i first started going there i was uh strictly vegetarian and i remember <laughs> i remember asking the guy i was like hey man Uh, I'd like to try your number two, but are the beans and rice vegetarian too? Or is there like lard in the beans and chicken stock in the rice? And he goes, no, 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 vegetarianos. And I was like, cool, awesome, I'll do that. And it was so good that I'd then been going there for like eight years. My vegan brother came to visit and I was like, I'm taking you to the spot, man. Oh my gosh. The spot. We go to Los Tacos and he's like, well, I'm going to ask if everything's vegan. I was like, it's vegetarian. What else are they going to put in it? I'm going to ask anyway. So he asks, and they go, oh, it's a different person. And the person goes, oh, no, it's not vegan. In fact, there's lard in the beans, and there's chicken stock in the rice. And I was like, whoa, 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 time out. All these years. (laughs) You told me no, and then I was replaying it back in my head. And so clearly, what the guy said was, no vegetarianos, not no comma vegetarianos.
5: Oh, no, that there isn't anything that's vegetarian.
4: And I was so excited about these tacos that I ate them anyway, thinking that he meant it's vegetarian.
5: (laughs) My lovely Yaya, who has helped me take care of my son, when I asked her how she would make her beans, I was like, I remember saying exactly the same thing. I was like, are they they vegetarian? And she was like, yes. And then she was like, except for the pork knuckle.
4: It's all vegetarian
5: except for the pork knuckle that you cook in with the beans to make them taste delicious. Yes, 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 Um, exactly. (laughs) It was, yeah. I loved that though. Oh my gosh, your poor brother.
6: Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She Hulk or from social media and my activism iWay basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people, I love learning, I have a lot to learn, and I'm inviting you along with me. On iWay with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists, and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Bayer, Alok, Kelly, Roland, and more. I weigh with Jamita Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am where it is. This isn't going to work.
5: In your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster?
4: Yes. So, you know, we talked briefly about the brown face of it all that I was laughing about. But experiences like that or going on auditions where I would be... For non-actors here, I'll give you the full disclaimer of every actor when you start out, the only thing you're allowed to audition for is what producers and casting directors think you look like. Exactly. So mm. uh, so my version of that obviously has ethnic and racial undertones because the late 90s and early 2000s, for somebody who looked like me, were a lot more about that than anything else. So I would go on auditions and it seemed like I was only getting auditions for parts that were already written to be South Asian or, or Latinx, frankly. or like, you can pass. And a lot of those are, are the, you know, sort of one-dimensional stereotypes. And I would always sort of said to myself, you know, an accent alone does not make a stereotype. Plenty of people have accents. And the stereotype comes from accents that are added in a reductionist way, meaning the producers know the writing sucks. Therefore, cover it up with an accent and people <sighs> will laugh, right? Wow. And I realized that early on, 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 you know, audition for things like uh, Sabrina, the teenage witch, um, which, uh, you know, it's a sweet show and it's for kids. And I remember going on this audition and the audition was three lines and I was so excited that I did, I was like, you know, I'm going to create a backstory for my character. So I was like, it's three lines. I don't care. Okay, this guy is from the Pacific Northwest. He's may- maybe grew up outside of Seattle, and he wears a lot of flannels, and he loves small batch organic coffee. And, like, <laughs> maybe he tried to brew beer once in his bathtub, and it didn't go well. Like, things like <laughs> – that. had nothing to do with the stupid three lines about the study group, right? But I went into this audition confident and with all this backstory. And uh, the casting director, I remember, ran out as I was getting to my car and he said, hey, the producers would love for you to do it again. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And so I, as I'm about to walk back in the room, he goes, this time with an accent. And I was like, ah, okay. There is a bit of coercion, as you mentioned, the the things that you're made to feel like you have to withstand. But ultimately, I could have said no. I could have walked out of there. But the thing that went through my head was, okay, this job pays about 700 bucks. My rent is 525 a month. And this is going to be a credit on a resume that's currently non-existent. So I I should probably do this because this would happen hundreds of times. Right. And so the thing that I would always say when they would say, we'd like you to do with an accent is sure. What kind of accent would you like? I can do Scottish, Irish, Southern Italian. You know, I would just go off and they, they were never amused, but they, in this case, the director who's a real prick leaned in and he goes, "Uh, why don't we just stick to Indian? So I said, okay, I did the audition and I walked out of there not feeling great. And so I, I went back to my apartment. I called my agent to tell her what had happened. And she she picked up the phone and said, congratulations, they called, you got the part. I felt so disappointed. Like, I was almost hoping I wasn't going to get the part because I didn't want to have to deal with what this was going to be. And I, I immediately felt like, what the hell is this? This sucks. When my friends get their first few roles, we all go out for drinks and we celebrate and we encourage each other. And they're excited that they're playing the frat boy from Indiana or whatever how come I don't get to be happy? I don't get to celebrate because I ha- I don't want to do the the stereotypical thing. So I said to the agent, is there any way you could call them and say that I'll only do it if if I can just play it the way I did before, like the the dude from the Pacific Northwest? And uh, she goes, my experience is that generally agents are the worst people to have this conversation. What, oh what you should do is, like, so if you know you're taking it anyway, why don't you go early, go in a half hour early, talk to the director. And see if you can make your case. So I went in a half hour early. I found the director. And he was very nice to me, unlike at the audition. And I said, hey, man, thank you. You know, buttered him up. Thank you so much right. for having me. What a fun script. <laughs> um, I was I was hoping that I could play him the way I did in the first round of my audition without an accent. And he goes, oh, no, that accent's hilarious. You're, you're going to do it. That's why we hired you. And And so then again, in my head, I'm like, ah, because, you know, the writing was subpar. There we go. And then I, I, this voice came into my head that was like, you know, they say that racism comes from ignorance. So perhaps he doesn't mm. even know, you know, and, and I don't want to presume the guy knows or feels things that he doesn't. So I said, I got to be honest. My little cousins love this show and they're, you know, they're like in fourth grade. I just thought it would be so cool if they could watch a character and experience something that I never got to experience and like see themselves in a way that, that I never got to see myself and laugh with a character instead of being laughed at and he looks at me and he goes uh well your cousins should feel lucky that you're allowed to be on tv to begin with and so should you and he walks off so my first thought was oh okay so it's not that ignorance equals racism sometimes racism equals racism like there's a prick who knows exactly what he's doing and he just doesn't give a shit but then the second part was, again, could I have left? Of course. Did I, did, was anybody forcing me to do anything? No, I I was the one who decided that this is what I wanted to do to, to get a credit on my resume. But the big takeaway for me was that, and it is a story that I tell in the audiobook book and the book, not because I want somebody to IMDB this guy, although you're certainly welcome to, but, but the, the, <laughs> I'm going the, to. the idea that it's, Gosh. but truly, I Minnie, mean, it's it, like, this is a, uh, these things are all systemic, right? It's not yeah. about this one guy or this no, one show. Exactly. It's about the things that thankfully we have slowly but surely moved on from. So, so that story that I just told you, there were like probably a hundred stories like that right. over a period of five or six right. years. And there was a point where I basically was like, I would see audition sides and I would know exactly what they wanted and I wouldn't prepare at all. Because I saw, you know, okay, it's a guy named Abdul from Pakistan. I know exactly what they're going to ask for. Do I even want to bother? And then on the rare occasion when I was like, oh, it's a guy named Justin from Milwaukee. Well, I'm obviously not going to get that part. So the same thing. would I wouldn't prepare. I wouldn't come up with the backstory. I would sometimes go on the audition. And and so there was a moment uh, after a long time of doing this where I just realized, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, you've already decided before you audition that you're not getting this part. You've just decided that. So you're not putting any work in. You're just showing up. Why are you even showing up for this? If this isn't something you're passionate about or that you want to figure out strategically how to build a career and what sacrifices you're going to have to make before you have the chance to call it a career, then do something Don't else. do it, yeah. And so yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the LSAT. I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to do wow. something else. And that, from that darkness, that realization that I know a lot of uh, artists, period, you know, musicians say this stuff a lot, athletes say this a lot, where it's the difference between, it, like, it's not a choice, right? You have to do it. So mm. when I when I had made the decision that maybe this isn't what I want to do, immediately I was like, no, that's wrong. This mm. is what I have to do. This is what I, I am passionate about, this form of storytelling. And so that me so I reevaluated everything from that point. I was like, I'm going to have to start saying no to certain auditions. Mm. There's nothing wrong with saying no to them and I shouldn't consider it a personal assault every time I see audition sides that are boring and racist and understand that the reason that I find them so abhorrent aside from obviously racist shit is really bad, but but a lot of the reason creatively that I find it so exhausting is that it's boring.
5: I wish there was a way I could talk about this without it drawing equivalency, because there is not equivalency. Racism is racism and sexism is sexism. They're they're different. They're systemic problems, but they're different. But I cannot tell you the familiarity of what you're saying, of the sensation of looking at something, of a woman being an adjunct to a man perpetually through a career, that if you're lucky, you can massage it. If you're clever and you're smart and you make it seem like it was all the guys in the room's idea for this woman to become more interesting and more intelligent, then you can up the experience. But I actually did leave Hollywood. I actually left and went to Hawaii and went, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I can't, I can't Uh keep fighting for, and, and be told that I should be grateful for the mediocrity that I'm being offered how do you continue to believe that you're good at something if that is perpetually, yeah. you're perpetually being told, no, this is a good part, and you read it and you go, yeah it, it isn't. It is an overly sexualized adjunct to this right. dude's story. So that recognition of either I do this and I figure out a way of staying connected to what, i want to do and say no to those things and maybe have some leaner years because i just go no i'm not going to do that shitty fucking movie even though it's big because it's dumb and it's stupid and it's perpetuating an idea about women yeah but you're absolutely right like there's enormous freedom in reaching that moment but it's also pretty terrifying i am really i understand I understand it, that
4: choice. The, I think those comparisons, while well, you're right, they are they are different, but I think it, it's it's a very fair, more than a fair comparison, because that's the systemic stuff that I think we're talking about, right? And that idea that when when I was at that low point of saying, I, I'm going to say no to certain things, and I'm going to recognize that one of the reasons I felt so disappointed that I wasn't able to go out and celebrate with friends when I would get these small jobs, I was trying to figure out what what... What did I actually have a problem with? And like I said, it's not that it's just an accent. It's recognizing that an accent is is a reductionist way of covering up shitty writing.
5: Exactly. Or that,
4: you know, this idea that you you hear people say this a lot, unfortunately, things like, oh, he had to play a 7-Eleven owner. I'm sorry, is a 7-Eleven store clerk somehow a less than noble profession? Are these guys not working 16 hours a day what people mean to say is that that reductionism of a profession especially a working-class profession tied to a character that has no other merit or actionable agency in a piece except for their profession and their ethnicity is by definition what creates a stereotype (laughs) so uh, kind of analyzing all that and then being like and basically i'm like in my early 20s at this point I want to play cool, fun, interesting characters. Yeah. I don't want to play characters that were already played 18 times on The Simpsons. <laughs> but, like, we've we've seen it all before, you know what I mean? We don't have to... The definition, especially as a, somebody who loves comedy, like, comedy continues to evolve in great ways when you have great writers. It's lazy if you always look backwards for what worked before because yeah. that's already been done. Exactly. It's like, why do we have to do it? <sighs> so that whole conversation was part of what came out of that for me.
5: Where were you at mentally when... Lawrence, what was his last name on House?
4: Kutner. When,
5: when, when Lawrence, Lawrence Kutner, C- when, yeah. that, when that character came along, yeah, yeah. where were you at in terms of of your career and how you were seeing it and how engaged you were with the kind of work that you wanted to do?
4: Yeah, thank you for asking me that question because that is uh, one, of, one of the, thankfully many, because uh, I feel like we've only talked about the problematic ones so far, uh, wonderful audition process. So David Shore, who created House, uh, I
5: love him. I, I'm incredible! An, I am, I am guy. honestly a devoted David Shore fan for the rest Same. of my life.
4: Yeah. Uh, when I was on House, they were adding, I think six or six or nine characters. We had to compete. Our characters were competing for permanent slots. First of all, it was men and women alike, Yeah. and the age range of those characters was like you know twenty-two to seventy. And I remember going in for the audition and I was given sides of a Mormon doctor. And I thought, somebody's made a terrible mistake or they seriously think that I could play a Mormon doctor. Whichever it is, that's crazy. Then I walk into the audition and it's men and women, 22 to 70, in the same waiting room. Amazing. With the same sets of sides.
5: Amazing, amazing.
4: And I'm like, what is this? Surely, is, is this what colorblind casting looks like? Uh, and even gender-blind casting to to some extent. And so I, you know, callback after callback, we're realizing they're whittling things down and they, it must've been two years later when I'd really gotten to know David that I had the guts to ask him, hey man, what was the deal with that audition? Why was it like that? And I described it exactly as I just did with you. And David goes, what are you talking about? And I said, come on, David, that is how you ran that audition. And he goes, no, 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 I know that's how I run all my auditions. What do you, what's your actual question? I said, well, why do it that way? You know, usually if I'm reading for something, it's either people who sort of look like me or I'm, I feel like I'm never going to get the part. And he goes, oh, I just do it that way because I want to hire the best actors. How are you going to find the best mm. actors if you don't open it up like that? Mm. And I was like, this is why you're so good at what oh, you do. Know. You know? So I like that that is going,
5: that's happening at the same time as the other shitty stuff that you were talking about.
4: No, there was a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff. I definitely don't want to make it sound like it's a, it's a shit fest.
5: No, it's part of it. That two things can be true at once, more than two things. Because it must have been amazing with Harold and Kumar. Like, yeah. The oh, fact that
4: incredible. I loved it.
5: To an Asian actor and a South Asian actor uh, running that movie, like yeah. And it was all. It was a happy experience.
4: Loved it. Oh yeah. And John Cho and I are close and the the whole team are all still still great. You
5: guys are both just completely hilarious.
4: Thank you. Oh
5: Cal, it's been such a pleasure talking to you.
4: Likewise, thank you.
5: Cal's new memoir, You Can't Be Serious, is out now in paperback and audiobook. You can also see Cal in the Santa Clauses on Disney (laughs) Plus. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising Producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research Assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Minnie Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Minnie Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR. De La Pescador, Kate Driver, and Jason Weinberg. And for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver.
0: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire.
1: If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme.
0: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin" on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations.